In medical school, I was trained in the stereotypes of autism, the triad of impairments. And if I were taught about that there were certain medical conditions that were more common for autistic people, it was like a rote list. It, there was no discussion of these neuroimmune processes. This is one of the strengths for many reasons that I am so grateful to be autistic. It's the strength of the systems thinking pattern matching that goes on. Here I have this practice of mostly autistic people and everybody's coming in you're like oh wait you too wait you too wait what so anyway that's not most primary care physicians experience this podcast respectfully operates on Ngunnawal and Ngambri country I would like to take this opportunity to acknowledge recognize and respect the traditional owners of country and their continuing connections to lands waters and communities we pay our respects to aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to elders past and present always was always will be Aboriginal land. special episode of Princess and the Pea podcast, a show where we talk about building a neuro-accessible world for autistic, ADHD and other neurodivergent people, with a specific focus on health and mental health, which underpins our access and inclusion in school, at work and more broadly in life. I'm your host, Annie Crow, and I'm an autistic ADHD human rights lawyer, a neuroaccessibility consultant, ND empowerment coach, public speaker, and soon to be published author. What a mouthful. <laughs> With my first book launching on the 3rd of October, check out the link in the show notes to pre-order your Kindle copy today. I've got an exciting season two starting now, where I chat with a variety of neurodivergent professionals and lived experience experts and the odd neurotypical ally about neuroqueering, hypermobility, birth trauma, perinatal mental health, OCD, fat positive fertility, the autistic experience of inaccessible emergency departments, neurodivergence and hormones, neuroinclusive education, and autistic entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs. Neurodivergent Pride Day, and more. Today, I'll be talking to the incredible autistic physician, Dr. Mel Hauser, who is leading the way in autistic healthcare reform and practice. We will be discussing the impact of long COVID on the autistic community, both from a professional lens and a personal one. I got COVID-19 in July 2022, and for the last 10 months, I've been struggling with long COVID myself, as has Dr. Mel Hauser. Mel also treats mostly autistic people and has seen huge amounts of long COVID in our community which we'll dive into more soon. But before we kick off, I have some exciting news and a giveaway. Yay! This episode is proudly sponsored by Yellow Ladybugs with the support of the Victorian government. There are timestamps in the show notes if you want to skip ahead to the COVID content or stick around for some great resources and a bit of an update. Yellow Ladybugs, for those who don't know, is a not-for-profit based in Victoria, Australia and founded by the fierce and fabulous autistic ADHD CEO Katie Coolis and a brilliant team of neurodivergent humans behind her. Katie has led the organisation for the last eight years, which I wanted to take a moment to celebrate and acknowledge the incredible work she's done with the support of her amazing team in that time and continues to do. I recently spoke about autistic burnout at the annual Yellow Ladybugs conference, and if you haven't checked it out, I believe access will be available until August or around 90 days after the conference, which was held in early May. 
It really is the event of the year and I loved speaking at the conference and attending it myself for the last two years. Oh, and by the way, this is not in the sponsorship deal, (laughs) but I really wanted to use this opportunity to celebrate their incredible work and I've just really enjoyed collaborating with them over the last few years. Anyway, I am privileged to have a platform and be invited to speak at many conferences in Australia and overseas, mostly virtually, thank goodness. <laughs> I love teaching people about neuroaccessibility, but conferences, like everything in life, are often highly inaccessible to neurodivergent and disabled people, like myself. In a world of quote-unquote COVID normal, many events are going back to in-person and some are even dropping the hybrid option and removing virtual access altogether. This is highly problematic for our community not only from a travel, cost and neurodivergent perspective, but also a health perspective too, which we'll get into shortly. Yellow Ladybugs is the most neuro-accessible conference I've ever attended and spoken at. Most conferences don't think about autistic ADHD access needs around conference instructions, communication and more. This is something that I find neurodivergent-run conferences really excel at and why we need neurodivergent and disabled representation involved in all conferences and events, everything. Nothing without us, period. Many of you might be familiar with the saying, nothing about us without us. I was talking to the only other disability speaker at the National Suicide Prevention Conference a few weeks ago, the wonderful Jen Blythe, who's CEO of Deaf Australia, and she told me she drops the without us. So instead of about us without us, she just says nothing without us. And I couldn't agree more. In the past, we needed to focus on nothing about us without us because more often than not, decisions about our lives as disabled and neurodivergent people were being made by non-disabled, non-neurodivergent people. Nowadays, this is becoming less common, thankfully. So the next step is ensuring neurodivergent and disabled folks and all other diverse minorities are represented always. Jen and I both really struggled at that conference. They allowed her to have an Auslan interpreter but they didn't ensure all videos were captioned or that the keynote speech didn't start in the dark. Listening to a voice? Slightly problematic for the deaf community. For me, they didn't allow online access for attendance or speaking, which meant my nervous system was a mess that week and had a huge impact on me for many weeks following the event. Kind of still is. They also didn't have a sensory room, although they did let me use the first aid room, which was helpful. These things wouldn't be happening, well, as much at least, if we had proper representation, especially in decision-making roles like on boards and executive positions. So nothing without us, period. Back to the fun stuff. Yellow Ladybugs recently released a brand new book called Supporting Autistic Girls and Gender Diverse Youth, which is an essential guide for parents, teachers and allies in supporting autistic young people and even adults, in my opinion. And we are giving away a free copy. Yay! (laughs) If you'd like to be in the running to win a copy yourself, check out the show notes for more information on how to enter. Basically, you need to follow our Instagram accounts, tag a friend and comment on the giveaway post about what neuroaffirming and accessible healthcare looks like and feels like for you or your family. This book is written by neurodivergent authors and is as affirming as they come. It features interviews with global autistic advocates, including yours truly, (laughs) with a brilliant and wonderful forward by Yellow Ladybug CEO Katie Coolis. This book is practical, educational, 
inspirational and peppered with humanity and humour. It's also now available worldwide after much demand, which is very exciting. If you want a copy, I'll leave the link in the show notes or you can enter the giveaway for a chance to win your own for free. Now to today's incredible guest and friend, Dr. Mel Hauser, whose pronouns are she, they. Mel is an autistic family physician who provides medical care for neurodivergent patients across the lifespan. They are the founder and executive director of All Brains Belong, a nonprofit organization in the United States, novel model for neuroinclusive healthcare that uses universal design principles and a basis of social connection as the path to heal. At age 37, Dr. Hauser was diagnosed as autistic, ADHD, dyspraxic, dyslexic, and dyscalculic. All the Ds. Well, almost. (laughs) She is also the parent of a multiply neurodivergent six-year-old, and I cannot wait to share our awesome conversation with you. Before we kick off, a quick content warning. This show is not for little ears. We do talk about adult content and physical and mental health issues. So use your discretion. And without further ado, let's do this. Welcome, Dr. Mel Hauser. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I am so excited for this episode and I've been waiting for months to steal your brain. (laughs) I am so excited to be here. We've been planning an episode for a long time and I think it just naturally evolved into long COVID because we both have it. (laughs) And as you're seeing it so much in, in the community that you treat who are predominantly neurodivergent. So I thought we could kick it off with talking about what are the symptoms and what are you seeing in your practice? Yeah, for sure. So I would say first off, just for context, is that I run a nonprofit organization called All Brains Belong in the United States and try to make life better for neurodivergent people. And we do that through medical care, social connection, and education. And the medical care, the medical practice, we are, most of our patients are autistic and or ADHDers. And many of them knew that already when they came here, many of whom were neuro lurking, wondering about that. And then a third, I would say equally common pathway that patients take to get to our practice is that they have healthcare problems that are not met by the traditional healthcare system and they are needing something different. And amongst that group of people whose needs were not met by the traditional healthcare system, the overwhelming majority of them have long COVID or long COVID like conditions that we'll talk about. And so that's, and really, because what we're really talking about is we're talking about neuroimmune conditions. And we know that autistic people, for example, have higher rates of long COVID. But why is that? It's because this is a much bigger picture of neuroimmune conditions. Yeah. Exactly. No. And it's funny you say that because what I'm seeing with long COVID, so much of people's experience is very common to our lived experience as neurodivergent people with brain fog and memory issues and dysautonomia and POTS and all of this sort of nervous system things that many of us experienced well before COVID came around. But now that COVID's around, are 
almost making our own experience worse and also yes. making the broader world be a little bit more aware of what it's like to live with a nervous system that isn't really typical. <laughs> yeah, and when you ask what, what I'm seeing that, I'm seeing people who had a lot of health challenges and were compensating. They were compensating in ways that are not healthy. And then there are these like serial threats. Maybe it's a surgery, maybe it's pregnancy, maybe it's a concussion. There's these stepwise progressions of neuroimmune dysfunction and then COVID happens and it's bam, yeah. and that is the next threat. Yeah. And so it is an exacerbation for many people, like you said, it's an exacerbation of this big picture that was always there. Yeah, absolutely. Some of the symptoms that I've been seeing pop up really commonly are things like fatigue, brain fog, the really classic set of mimicking chronic fatigue and that sort of thing. Is there like a very common trend that you're seeing? I would say that the, the nervous system, the immune system impact the whole body. Symptoms can be really anything. And like classically, long COVID is described as fatigue and in particular post-exertional fatigue, post-exertional malaise, brain fog, dizziness, gastrointestinal symptoms, maybe heart palpitations or other manifestations of dysautonomia. Maybe people have chronic respiratory symptoms like cough or shortness of breath, maybe yeah. people have chest pain, sleep disturbance. But this is, and this is it's again, not specific to mm. long COVID. And there's, I think, a lot of mythology that yes, COVID is new, but the idea of post-infectious chronic illness is not new. Before this, we were emailing about myalgic encephalitis, chronic fatigue syndrome, MECFS, and you're asking about like, how is, what does this have in common? It has a lot of things in common. MECFS, which uh, unfortunately so many people are afflicted with and the healthcare system internationally has been neglecting this, this huge patient community. What many people describe is that Long COVID is MECFS kicked off by COVID. And this is, can be from any chronic illness. And if there's no blood test, there's no blood test for long COVID. There's no blood test for MECFS. There's no like definitive, like, yeah, now we know what's wrong with you. It's long. That's not a thing. And yeah. that's like, I, I meet patients who were literally told that by their healthcare providers. Oh, you may have long COVID. We should send you to the long COVID clinic to get some tests. Not only do we have a healthcare system that doesn't understand the needs of autistic people in terms of like interactions, but we have a healthcare system that doesn't get any training in autistic physiology and mm. the medical conditions that autistic people so commonly describe. Like in my practice, 95% of our autistic adults have this big picture of what we call it all the things because mostly all the people here have all the things and it's the systemic neuroimmune conditions and not everyone had covid it's that this isn't specific to covid it yeah. was that for many people this was exacerbated to the point of no longer being able to work to play with your kids to be able to do the things you were doing anyway so that's the bigger this is in my mind this is like really urgent that healthcare providers learn learn about not only how do you support sensory processing communication executive functioning but how do you like how do you really understand how do autistic people's bodies work because our mm. bodies work differently 
Absolutely. The Australian government just did a big inquiry into long COVID and one of the big issues that came up was that there's no real consensus on a definition for long COVID. As you were saying, this makes it hard to diagnose and it makes it hard for health practitioners to really identify these things. And then if you add on top of that neurodivergence and having that atypical experience, I just think the risks for our community to be ignored or dismissed are exponential in this space, which really worries me considering we have a much higher risk of experiencing long COVID and having complex outcomes from it. I know that you a wealth of knowledge on mast cell activation. I just want to pick your brain a bit and share with our audience, what is mast cell activation disorder? Is it disorder? Yeah. So there's, there's gradations about whether you're going to call it a disorder or an actual syndrome. But anyway, like big picture is yeah. that mast cells are a type of immune cell. You have mast cells in every organ system. Mast cells are they're born in the bone marrow, and then they are trained to recognize safe, not safe. And in response to threat, they release chemical signals that recruit more immune cells to come and help and symptoms that people get. So for example, I get stung by a bee. The mast cells detect that the bee venom is like not safe and boom, big response, release massive signals of histamine and other chemicals that then recruit other immune cells to come and help so that I don't die from my bee sting. Thank you, mast cells. The problem yeah, is you. that <laughs> we need mast cells. Mast cells keep us alive. The problem is that we have people who, because of both the way that folks are born and have genetic predisposition, plus acquired, acquired impact of the immune system, we have mast cells that are, one, reacting to threats that are not really threats. When I'm driving in my car and the sunlight changes from, like, bright dim as we go through shadows, guess what? Not a threat. My mast cells, they think that's a threat. So yeah. big response, right? Yeah. Um, so responding to things that are not a threat, sound the alarm when it's not a threat, or the thing is a threat, but they're having this like big response. So for me, pollen, dust, they're a threat. They're legitimately a threat. Do I need to have like whole body system reaction to having pollen? No, I do not need that. But anyway, so it's what you're responding to and the extent of the response. There are tests for some of the the, the chemical mediators, the signals that mast cells release. However, yeah. that is, those tests are, first off, they're very expensive. They're not available in many places. They're also like, if you don't catch people at a particular peak symptom, like within a certain number of hours of the onset of symptoms, it may not turn positive. So it's especially because the management of mast cell dysfunction or mast cell activation disorder, mast cell activation syndrome, you only call it MCAS mast cell activation syndrome you call it that if you have a positive blood test like there's the rules around that so anyway so we might say yeah. mast cell dysfunction or mast cell activation disorder mast cell activation disease anyway and cast we reserve for when you have the blood test whatever you have symptoms present in two or more organ systems and the symptoms that you get depend on what organ system you are like right now i have this i can feel the rash starting from my silicone earbuds which i, I never had this so problem until i had covid so anyway so i so my mouth 
mast cells on my skin or like they're reacting, but it might be somebody, the mast cells in their gastrointestinal tract every time they are responding to a threat from something of food. And it may not be something that they were always allergic to. A lot of people describe that after they have COVID, for example, now they can't have dairy or that anyway, yeah. these are like this, the mast cells are dysregulated. They're just dysregulated. So this can be in the cardiovascular system. And you mentioned dysautonomia. That's what that's involved. It could be across the blood brain barrier in the brain, brain fog, loss of taste and smell. These are all like neurologic symptoms. Yeah. If it's mast cells in the respiratory tract, that's your wheezing, coughing, shortness of breath. So it's in your nose and your eyes, like your whole, it's your reacting something in the environment. You're going to have more, yeah, you're going to have more nasals, sinus kind of symptoms. And the idea is that you have symptoms in two or more organ systems. You treat mast cell dysfunction. And honestly, it's a really great search term for your listeners because a lot of the treatments for, and again, I'm not giving medical advice. I'm just providing health education here. If you Google mast cell activation syndrome and you read about some of the treatments, you will find many of them do not require a prescription. Many of them are over-the-counter medicines and supplements. So the idea is that if you have symptoms in two or more organ systems, you have the decrease in frequency or severity with mast cell targeted medications or supplements. And then you have these elevated MCAS lab tests and blood or urine, that's MCAS criteria. But what we know about mast cells is that they crosstalk with the nervous system, they crosstalk with the soft tissues. Mm -hmm. So it's the... It's the communicating signal that links the nervous system and the immune system. And so when we, when that, which is why when we think about so many of the medical conditions that are more common for autistic people mm-hmm. and anything from hypermobility spectrum disorder slash hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome as a subsect of that. POTS, dysautonomia, irritable bowel syndrome, fibromyalgia, and other chronic pain syndromes, obstructive sleep apnea, migraine, endometriosis, like the whole list. If you look up any one of those things, plus mast cells, there's research on this. Mast cells are, for many people, they explain a lot. So, cause it doesn't make sense that a human would have 40 things wrong with them Yeah, is yeah. one thing. It's one thing. And we can treat this one thing. I love that so much because we do hear people sometimes talking about how autistic people are more likely to have complex health and autoimmune issues and all of those things. I feel like MCAS really is that link that people miss of explaining it. And to get a little metaphorical here, one of the main reasons why I called my podcast Princess in the P isn't just because I am emotionally sensitive or sensory sensitive, but it's because my body in every single way is sensitive to the world and environment. And to me, that really explains on a deeper level my own lived experience and the experience of many of my clients and having really complex health pictures that people just don't connect the dots. And for me, I really hope that this kind of thing really becomes much more common knowledge because I think that we could be identifying autistic people much earlier from the angle of physical health. If if we've got kids showing up with chronic pain or chronic inflammatory anything, then it should be automatic, I think, for all health practitioners to think 
is potentially this an autistic person because the link is so strong. And as we know, many of our community are late identified, which has implications such as access, lack of support, lack of ability to self-advocate or even have your basic needs met. Yes. I digress. But yeah, no, I just aspect that it is really this overreaction to everything. And it's not a choice. And I think as in physically, it's a physical overreaction to things like sensory light input or immune response or whatever. It's really critical part because I've heard a lot of people talking about their experience with long COVID or long hauler and having medical advice saying, just think positive. It's it's really not a choice that I'm having this experience. There's so much, there's so much of this. And there's also a lot of, frankly, a lot of um, harmful advice out there in in addition to things that are invalidating because that is harmful but like also things like if you have post-exertional malaise meaning you get up and do anything and we're not talking about like exercise it's not i've heard described exercise intolerance what this is not exercise this is like i picked my head up off the pillow right post-activity and activity intolerance if you push through that makes it worse So when you tell people, suck it up, get up and exercise, no. In fact, no. The opposite of that is what we want to do. And I can link, I don't know if you you can link in the show notes, we can send it around the, there are these evidence-based guidelines for pacing protocols for ME-CFS that we use a lot in my practice and that I've used personally. I just also name that of all of the many layers of privilege that I have autonomy over my most of my environments, like even I have privilege over the air I'm breathing, you know, like that I have influence and agency over the air I'm breathing. Most people don't have that. But even the idea of when we talk about pacing, most people don't have autonomy and agency to actually stop what they're doing when they feel terrible. By the way, that's not pacing. I mean, I guess it's pacing. You want to preempt yeah. Yes. Absolutely. So we have people who like in, in a world, and this is all part of all of the, the intersectional power systems that, you know, of urgency culture and all the idea of your value comes from what you produce and not who you are. Like all of this is yeah. so gross and bad for health. And it's actually like the opposite of what needs to happen to recover from long COVID. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's funny because I had a lot of experience in the chronic pain space, which is very much all about pacing. And one of the biggest struggles I faced years ago in learning about chronic pain and seeking treatment, how to manage my own chronic pain was the, the barriers. There's so much inherent privilege in the capacity to pace. And I think the intersection of neurodivergence there is things like some of us really struggle to read our own body signals, tune into our environment and how we're handling things and notice when we're having responses that maybe trigger a thought of, okay, next time I need to like do this instead or put these things in place. I found I was in this sort of push-pull scenario of I know that pacing is basically the answer to be able to manage my chronic pain flare-ups, but also that I couldn't do it. And so I love that you're talking about this because I think that if we come at it from an angle of understanding neurodivergence and privilege and all of these systems of really digging deeper into being like, these are some barriers you might be up against, but it's so important, one, that they're recognised and two, that we actually talk about how do we support them because for so many of us, and I, I know that we wanted to talk a little bit about burnout, but so many of us experience burnout, autistic burnout, 
which is obviously very different to occupational burnout. And I think a big part of that is that we are constantly in a state of survival and we really struggle to put our own needs first. And I'm talking basic needs around sleep, food, very basic needs, let alone the bigger needs of boundaries and all those psychological needs, right, that we are at such a risk there. Yes. And when I said that there was literature on mast cells and like all these things, there's literature on mast cells and trauma. And so whether we're talking about macro trauma or micro trauma of living in daily life Depression. in a world that's not just right, like all of it. And then you throw on off and we talk about intersectional experience and think about all the different ways in which humans are othered and marginalized. So if you're a neurodivergent plus a person of color, plus LGBT. you're marginalized for your gender, you're right. Yeah. So you have all the more like that you stack up all of the threats to your mass cells. This is, this is at a cellular level. Yeah. And I always think that it's so odd as a non-health practitioner or non-health professional, you know, most of my job these days is learning about health and talking to health professionals. And I just find it so almost comic, just funny that they constantly try to separate physical and mental health when I think that they are intrinsically linked and the fact that we keep separating them is causing so much harm to all of society, let alone our neurodivergent community. Amen. Thank you. I knew you would get this because you get this, but it just blows my mind how common it is in the health space to see this separation when every single part of our physical and mental health experience is intrinsically linked. And to ignore that does so much harm. Absolutely. And examples of like things that like the neuronormative narratives around you should be able to handle this or you shouldn't feel sad or you shouldn't feel anxious or you shouldn't be whatever. It's like your mast cells, your actual immune system is being impacted with these things. This is not a choice. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my goodness. I could talk about this all day with you. I really wanted to, I guess, touch on, you know, talking about how we are more at risk of long COVID and all of those things. There's a big anxiety level in the autistic community of we're in COVID normal, which doesn't mean that COVID's normal. It means that our world now has adapted to experiencing this pandemic. And even though lockdowns are ending and things are starting to go back to quote unquote normal, we're still in this place of risk. And for our community, I think being autistic innately can make you a little bit, for me anyway, and a lot of my clients more anxious about health because we do have complex health and we know we're at more risk, regardless of now that we're actually seeing those statistics come out. We just inherently know that's a problem. But I just wanted to talk a little bit about managing health anxiety and especially validating our community for that anxiety, because I think a lot of us are constantly invalidated by the world saying, oh, COVID's not a big thing anymore. I think that anxiety is completely valid for many reasons, but I just want to, I guess, get your link there on talking about how it's so legitimate considering everything we're talking about and the very, very real risk that we're seeing in specifically yes. in our families because neurodivergence is very genetic 
And so we're seeing our loved ones get affected by this. And it's terrifying to think that just having a quick flu, or if you do get a mild dose of COVID, could have really substantial long-term impacts. So let's actually focus there. I think like before before I agree with you enthusiastically, I just want to just name the thing. Yeah. So one, what we know is that even if you have a mild case of acute COVID, or even no symptoms at all, you can still get long COVID. That is a thing that I don't think the entire general public knows. That's such a good point. Um, yep. Number two, what we know is that the more times you get acute COVID, the higher risk of long COVID is. Yes. So that thing that I think the public needs to know. So I think that people think, oh, I had COVID, I'm okay. I have um, immunity yeah. now or something. There's Yeah, there's all kinds of things that like it's, these yeah. messages actually come from healthcare sources and you're like, ah, what about everything we learn? Or where I am now, the mask mandates have been lifted in healthcare facilities. And so not only do we have people who have to choose between their health and full and meaningful participation in their lives, but now we actually have to choose between health and health care, which is just like, ah. Anyway, I called up one of our local healthcare facilities and I said, most of my patients are immunocompromised. They need to come get blood work at your facility. Can we talk about arranging something where you could draw outside or have a designated hour or something? And they're like, they can just ask us as an accommodation to wear a mask. Did you not learn how COVID was spread? COVID is an airborne illness. Like... All right. So now we've named the thing. Yeah. Okay. Now I'm going to agree with you, which is that. So not only do we have mythology out there that is underestimating an individual's risk of having a post-infectious chronic illness that they may have for the rest of their lives that will not only shorten their lifespan, but have dramatic potentially dramatic impact on their quality of life. Mm -hmm. So that, not only that, but we also have people having to deal with friends and family and coworkers, even healthcare providers are like, how long are you going to do this COVID thing? Where this COVID thing is like trying to not get this terrible thing. So yeah. So we also, of course, we have people who for decades have been so invalidated. You don't know what you're feeling, all the thing. It's not so loud. It's not so bad. It's not so that. Anyway, all of that. You layer on people telling you that you're making a big deal. You're too much. It's too much. The way you're appraising risk is too much. So I just want to name the thing. My professional opinion as a physician is that you are not too much. This is a significant threat. And again, I say this with privilege of having autonomy over mm. the safety of the air I'm breathing. Yeah. If people are needing to access public school, needing to access employment where they are not allowed to mask or there's all kinds of things. So anyway, I think acknowledge that the concerns are valid and i think it's really important for people to connect with community who share similar values and see the world as you do this way when people shame you and invalidate you 
it in many ways it's a, a, a cloak, not yeah. certainly not of invincibility, but just like a cloak of protection, protection. Yeah, a communal yeah. hug of you're not you like you're you're a rational decision maker. Yeah, who, we get you. <laughs> like is yeah, because because then somebody makes some comment and you could be like, that's on them, that's not on me. I don't right. doubt myself because look, I'm surrounded by people who are also seeing the world consistent with science. Yeah. So there's that. The other thing I would say is that there may be some, some things that, you know, maybe you don't have autonomy over the particular environments you're in, but maybe there are some things that you can do to mitigate risk. Yeah. And so I can go, I can go into that, but I think just, I think more of a framework is that like you are valid, your, your concerns are valid. And I think it doesn't need, if it can't be all or nothing, it would be great if it were all or nothing, but if it can't be all or nothing, there are still some things that you can do to mitigate 100%. risk. 100%. I love that. And I think just back to the community aspect, which I'll be putting a lot in the show notes because all brains belong is fantastic and we're limited on time today, but <laughs> I really want to highlight the community aspect because I think so much of what I teach around self-advocacy, especially in healthcare settings, is so caught up in the fact that most of us have experienced a lifetime of being invalidated or gaslit about our lived experience. And I think a big antidote to that is really leaning into finding your community of people who really get your lived experience and can validate that, but on a deeper level to the point where when, and you've already said this, I'm just like making sure it hits home to anyone listening because it's one of the biggest things I work with clients on is unpacking that internalized ableism, which we all have, and it's really pervasive. And I'm sure like me, you've probably done loads of work on that and we've had privilege of getting support on that. And yet it still comes up in our lives constantly. And so when you are getting that voice, especially when there's a power dynamic of a health professional telling you that your experience is invalid or whatever, that you have that capacity to go, hang on a second, that's wrong. You don't understand me and my community. I know that this is a very real thing. And just because you don't have that education and awareness and lived experience doesn't mean my experience is any less valid. And so being able to build that narrative in your head, knowing that you've got this, you've got this little cheer club behind you that can have your back in those moments of feeling completely dismissed, whether that's by your best friend, your parent or your doctor it's just so important. So I just really wanted to hone in on that point that you made and how critical it is for our community. Yes. And I think that when I was in a traditional primary care or general practice setting, I was probably for five years prior to quitting my job to start this nonprofit organization. I was taking care of neurodivergent kids and adults, often multi-generational families. And I was thinking like, if only all these lonely people could be friends yes. and if only I could introduce them and <laughs> if only they had community and then I was like why don't I just do that Let's and do so it. like this is the whole yeah because this is the whole model exactly. of the organization it's community driven healthcare, and it's like community delivered healthcare. it's just like unlearning so many of the traditional 
just assumptions and just traditional systems of healthcare delivery. This is really a community village, a community village of learning and healing together. And in addition to unpacking and rewriting all of these narratives that no longer serve us, it's really, it's this focus on community operating in ways that are good for all humans and give people a place to belong. And you find your people, and then that's the context where you can show up as your true self. You can maybe feel safe within relationship, maybe for some people for the first time. Yeah, And that is like the foundation of health. Right, that was what I was just thinking. I'm like, that is literally health in a nutshell. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. And so to that end, I say this because I think when we think about interfacing with the traditional healthcare system, it's about having some clarity on what you're looking for from that particular encounter. You're not going to get validation in a lot of the time. So if you have a thing that you have like specific questions that you are, you're picking someone's brain, you're trying to see if they have the expertise and experience to answer specific questions that you have. That is a very different place than an undifferentiated, I show up with my multi-organ system symptoms that the healthcare provider didn't get taught about in medical school. Yeah. Like in medical school, I was, I was trained in the stereotypes of autism, the rote list of the triad of impairments. And mm. if I knew that there, if I were taught about that, there were certain medical conditions that were more common for autistic people. It was like a rote list. It, there was no discussion of these neuroimmune processes. I, this is one of the strengths for many reasons that I am so grateful to be autistic. It's the strength of the systems thinking pattern matching that goes on here. I have this practice of mostly autistic people and everybody's coming in. You're like, oh, wait, you too? Wait, you too? Wait, what? So anyway, that's not most primary care physicians experience. Not most people don't have a practice like mine. Yeah. 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 I love that you highlighted that even my own work. It's really that our brain's ability to recognize these patterns that so many people just miss or just don't even think to open their mind to that help our community and just help the world really so much. I love that you pointed that out. But I also wanted to talk about diving into the fact that we do really have to face this medical system that is so rigid. They talk about us being black and white and rigid thinking and yet all I've experienced of health systems, public and private, has been extremely narrow-minded and rigid. And most of all, I call myself, I'm like always the exception to the rule, always, because I'm never textbook in any medical case at all. And, you know, we were talking earlier about how I've been not well since I had COVID in July 2022 last year. And my GP gave me a referral to our public long COVID clinic a few months ago. And I never actually went because I looked it up online and looked into what type of things that they could do and that they were focusing on. And very quickly, realize, and I'm not saying people shouldn't go get help at all, (laughs) but I'm just saying in my particular circumstance and my very much extensive, I'm very privileged to have access to incredible community of health professionals that I can ask questions to and stuff. But I knew from reading what their clinic was talking about, that I was going to be faced with a lot of the same challenges I've faced in all of my complex health journey of getting very unhelpful 
neuronormative advice that really doesn't take into my very complex nervous system and brain and link all those dots. And I just thought, I'm not going to even do that because, and I'm not against traditional medicine at all, but we're in a state right now where we're really just beginning to think about, understand, and really learn about long COVID. And so we know that's hard for everyone, let alone those of us who are complex. <laughs> yeah. So right. I just, yeah, really wanted to highlight that. And especially that, and, and you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of research going on in the long COVID space and some of it is not connected to what's known already. So it's really breaking down like those silos are really required. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and like uh, later this summer, we'll have a, we're working on finishing, it's been working on it for a year. We have a community task force, multidisciplinary clinicians and patients, just elevating the value of lived experience. Yes. And we've been putting together these best practices and more importantly, things that are harmful with these different subcomponents. So this is bigger than long COVID, although long COVID is all the things kicked off by COVID as we've discussed. But yeah. for example, like if somebody has chronic pain and their physician prescribes a muscle relaxant, but they also have unrecognized hypermobile EDS and now their floppy connective tissue in their airway now is extra floppy. Now that made their unrecognized sleep apnea worse. So much Autistic worse, yeah. people are known to have higher rates of sleep apnea. Yeah. And, you, you, and folks with EDS have higher rates of sleep apnea. You put this together and you're like, ah, floppy connective tissue just got floppier. Now you made dysautonomia worse. Now you made pain worse. And it's all of that, right? So it's the just the understanding, not only autistic physiology, but like how these how standard management of some parts of all the things make the other parts of all the things worse. And anyway, that's what this resource is going to be about. And it'll just be like free on our website. We are fortunate enough to get some funding from the Organization on Autism Research and the Autism Intervention Research Network for Physical Health. And so we've been putting this together and it'll be available by the end of July. Woohoo! I'm so excited. And I will be spamming all of our followers about that. I love that because I'm just like having a moment. <laughs> I was in a car accident in my early 20s, so over a decade ago now. It was basically not a big deal at the time. Like I had minor whiplash and it was getting treated very mildly by a physio. And after a few weeks, it was not getting better. And my GP put me on muscle relaxants for the pain. And literally two hours after I took the first dose, which was very low, very mild, I fell face first down my entire staircase and destroyed my lower oh. left leg and ankle. Oh. But, and this is another thing that I just wanted to touch on because I know we've talked about in the past is that we also tend to have, not only because I'm hypermobile and such, but we have different reactions to medications, which is such a real challenge in healthcare. A lot of us have very different responses, either hypo or hyper responsive to things like anesthetics and pain yeah. medicines and all of these things that can have, you know, something that can be such a generic response from the medical profession to treat our symptoms of whatever they are, of chronic pain, blah, blah, blah can have such profound harmful impacts if none of this is considered in that sort of holistic 
view of the autistic health lens. And that I think I love that you brought that up because honestly, one of the biggest fear factors for me for why I was avoiding the long COVID clinic was really that what harm will they do to me? It wasn't really, are they even going to be able to help me? It was like, what will this hurt me more doing? Whether that's being exposed, as we talked about, to maybe not the greatest air quality or mask wearing factors, but also just their generic advice that doesn't consider my physiology as an autistic person, what will that do to me? Which is usually not a great thing. (laughs) Well, and I think, and it's hard to pick, there's so many ways in which my life has been changed since that I'm autistic, but one of the main things that's different is that I have been progressively learning to trust my intuition. Oh, I love that. And and I think that, and it's a lot like there's so much on learning. So, so if you know, much. you're a little kid and you say, the TV's too loud, it's not loud. And you're like, oh, why are you sad? I'm not sad. I'm just I just have a flat affect. Anyway, yeah. I guess I don't I guess I don't know what I'm feeling anymore. And I don't know. Am I anxious? Yeah. Am I hungry? Am I my interoception conditions? So you just mm-hmm. all of it. Yeah. Yeah. This just blows my mind because many of us do really struggle with interoception, which is for those who are new to that, being able to recognize your hunger signals or your pain and all of those things, internal body states. But I think about that and think how much of being an autistic person means that we inherently have poor interoception and how much of it is a learned lack of interoception from being gaslit about our experiences, right? Yes, that. So it's both. I think it's both. And even if you think about just like feedback in general and even like motor feedback. So I'm significantly dyspraxic. In most instances, there's such a huge gap between my intention and my implementation. And that's going to have an impact on self-concept, right? And so if and just even the idea of having difficulty with feeding forward because the thing I do does not predictably result in the same outcome each time. And I think that social feedback functions in that way as well. So like you, so I think what you said, that's how I connected that. Yeah. Oh, me too. Me too. So many dots, so many dots. One of the things that we really need to touch on, I think, is the economic impact of long COVID. And obviously we come from different countries with different health systems and different governments. So there's a lot of, although there's a lot of similarities, there's also very many differences. But I really just wanted to bring up the big inquiry that the Australian government has just had into long COVID and I guess what Australia is doing. And I'm interested to hear your insight on what your system's doing or even just us both thinking about how this can all move ahead in a positive way. (laughs) I just wanted to touch on, I guess, the economic impact and disability aspect, because so many of us autistic folk are already disabled. There are plenty of autistic people that don't consider themselves disabled. I'm not one of them. (laughs) And being an autistic person, I live with multiple disabilities, including physical. And yet if you add long COVID to that and further I guess, autoimmune response and how that impacts your ability to be productive in a society that ultimately values productivity above all. In Australia, we have this thing called the National Disability Insurance Scheme, which currently covers autism, but only 
you've got level one, two, and three. So level three is pretty much automatically covered, whereas level one and two are more and more becoming harder to get onto this disability scheme for, which is upsetting. But without diving too deeply into that, ADHD is not, and yet as is really problematic. And most of us who are autistic are also ADHDers and that both of those things are very much interlinked and very much disabling in a world not set up for our brains. So I guess on the economic side of it and just in general of long COVID and how that's impacting our ability to function in society, that is a real problem that if you mix in the in the fact that you're we're already neurodivergent and we already many of us experience disability we have this huge barrier ahead of us in being able to actually address that and adequately support the autistic community or the neurodivergent community broadly in not only being able to recover from and cope with long covid but also be able to live productively or safely in society where they're not falling through these gaps and very much at risk of homelessness and suicide, as we can see in some of the studies coming out. Yeah, so I guess this was more of a statement than really a question, but I just think I just wanted to raise it because I think it's often missed in these conversations. And as we know, health is the ultimate, right? Health is everything. It's the basis of our existence. I personally, I do a little bit in the employment space, but always with health very much the forefront of our experience in the workplace, right? Because autistic health impacts everything, including our ability to participate in society. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So I could not agree more with everything that you just said. I think that what I would add is that it is a circular problem. Yeah. So when we think about long COVID, post-infectious chronic illness, worsening someone's ability to access what was already difficult to access, this then becomes circular. So if you can't access employment and you lose your job, you can't do your job in the way you were doing it, and you're in a culture that does not allow for neuroinclusivity, accessibility, like all the things that need to be also happening. Like it's a bigger conversation here. You can't do the work. You're being shamed. You're being stressed out. You're having a bigger mass cell response. So your long COVID symptoms get worse. You're deeper into autistic burnout and you're just like circular. It's just, just, you can't get out of your own way. At any given time, like most of the Aubrey's Belong Village is in burnout or like hovering on the edge of burnout. And it's because of the environment. The environment does that. The environment's driving you to burnout at any given time. So it's hard because people come and they say, well, you know, I'm in burnout. What do I do? And unfortunately, there's not magic. It's not magic. You have to shift your capacity to demand ratio. And then like we talked about before, all the layers of privilege Privilege, to have autonomy to drop certain aspects of demand to your neuroimmune system. I want to take this back. This is a physiologic thing that's happening. It's not like some kind of like weakness of character or whatever. Just it's a neuroimmune response to this environment disabling Mm -hmm. you. And I think that people need to charge their battery more than they drain it. 
And if there are co-occurring medical conditions, long COVID, sleep apnea, mast cell dysfunction, dysautonomia, MCFS, like whatever you want to name it that you have, that thing is draining your battery. So having that thing is extra draining your battery. So you, even if you had the most like ideal work conditions or whatever, if you have untreated sleep apnea, you are going to be draining your battery more than you're charging it. So it's like, you got to do all of it. It's like a complete paradigm shift to have your needs met. And it's not just maybe your, one of your main symptoms is, I don't know, fatigue, It's not a matter of just resting more, probably is, but it's looking at this from an angle that there's so many factors at play here and it's not usually just a one fix all. I love that you brought that up because I think that's so critical. Really focusing on the fact that this is physiological, it is very real and so many of us living in this state of constant burnout, regardless of COVID and regardless of long COVID, if you're an autistic person in a world that is fundamentally not set up to support your nervous system. You're constantly fighting this battle of trying to exist and fight burnout, which is coming from a place of this toxic environment that's made for neurotypical brains and bodies, not ours. (laughs) And so if you add that that layer of long COVID and immune response and all of the, all the things, Yes. It's inevitable that burnout becomes a much higher risk and not only that, but more enduring. And that I think is where the disability factor comes in, right, is that if you get to a point of autistic burnout that is so severe that you can't easily start to come back from that, which again is all wrapped up in privilege and all of those things, but that is really where this long-term impact on our community, on our lives, on our ability to exist really comes in. And I think this has been a beautiful sort of full circle connection of those dots, right? (laughs) Absolutely. Yes. So interlinked. And I think if you like zoom way out and say, okay, ideally I would, I'd learn about my brain. I'd learn about my access needs. I would have the agency and autonomy to be able to design a life that works for my brain. Like these are all these like theoretical things based on privilege, but people can't even do that. Because they don't know what they need because they've never had their needs met. Yeah. A patient of mine said this most, like one of the most profound things I've ever heard. I don't know what my needs are. I just know they're not being met. I love that. And it's so mic drop, honestly, for our community, one of the biggest challenges. And I think this really ties into the workplace because so much in the workspace is starting to become more aware of neurodiversity and more wanting to be neuroinclusive and yet to see the actual action take place it's not happening and there's this disconnect what does it actually mean to be accessible and inclusive of neurodivergent employees and a lot of that is putting the pressure on us the individuals to say what our accommodation needs are let alone feel safe enough to disclose them trust that they'll be met and not dismissed but That's just ableism. Exactly. But really at this deeper level, talking about what is it that we actually need? And my clients, I mostly work with neurodivergent adults and a big chunk of them are getting access to things like the NDIS, our disability scheme. And yet most of them are still in a state of thinking, what can I actually get help with? One, because this stuff is not talked about because it's mostly focused on autistic kids and early intervention, quote unquote. And two, now that I've actually got 
some form of help, which is hard enough to even get to begin with, how do I find people who are going to help me navigate what that looks like for me and my neurodivergence and what can actually help me that I give myself permission to get help with while working with that internalised ableism of you should be able to do the adulting stuff and all of that that sort of side of it. Yeah, quote, unquote, adulting. Yeah, right. no, I just, I love that because I think it's such a big challenge and it's why I focus so heavily on accessibility because I think we need to be looking at accessibility from an environmental perspective and the individual level of what will make your life more accessible to live, whether that's in healthcare, in the workplace, education, in your home, in your relationships, what is going to help you survive and start to turn down that threat response? I don't know that I want you to turn down your threat response. I want you to not need one because I want you to not have a threat to respond to. I want to connect this to an earlier comment about interoception. Yes. So a lot of us, example, I don't know that I'm hungry until I'm ferociously hangry. Yeah, same. <laughs> I think that the function of the mast cell to sound the alarm, I don't think we'd have noticed. I don't think we would have noticed unless the mast cells were like, oh, huge response. Example, I was giving a training to a group of professionals who were like not really open to learning. And my mast cells had a response to that to the tune of my heart rate was 160. I grabbed a pulse oximeter, put it on my finger. I felt terrible. So I grabbed a pulse oximeter and put it on. So, oh, <laughs> okay. All right. Guess what? It's because that environment was not safe. And to be honest, I'm more selective about who I do trainings for now. So it, it's just like, I, yes, I want to change the world. Yes, I want the whole world to be more neuro-inclusive, but I have a, a much more narrow margin because my mast cells react to everything. Yes. And I wouldn't say that I don't want them to. I would say that it's a clue that my, my balance of what is in my environment how am I managing all of these threats? I'm not managing them. I, th I think there's a lot of people who describe whatever their lens is. They may not be talking about mass activation or long COVID, but they're talking about autoimmune disease. Whatever they're talking about, they're all talking about the same thing. Just yeah. nobody knows that. Anyway, yeah. but it's just that like we are living in a world where there's a lot about it that's not safe. Yeah, you're so right. Because I think even hearing myself talk, about that is it's almost putting it back on us to think that we need to fix our immune response or fix our trauma response rather than recognizing that there's a function of it and it's actually a protective mechanism to a environment that is unsafe for us and yes I love that you brought that back and thank you for helping me unpack that more because I think that really needed to be for there. sure that is so important yeah, it's like the canary in the coal mine yes like the mast cells are like, I'm going to get your attention. I wish that it was not so uncomfortable to have my attention gotten. Yeah. But now I'm like, oh, oh. Yeah. Now I can't ignore you. 
thank you so much for coming on and talking about such an important issue and also just the connections to so many broader struggles and problems in our society as well. This has been amazing. Dr. Mel Hauser, everybody, I could talk to you all day and just love how your brain works and how our brains vibe and all the incredible connections that we can make together. And I hope people get half as much value from this as I have, because it's been just a phenomenal chat. So thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much. I love your brain too. And because we both have brains that everything is connected to everything, I really appreciate this opportunity to be connecting long COVID with the big picture of autistic health. I loved every minute of that conversation with Dr. Mel Hauser. And I hope you got a lot out of it too. Lots to think about and especially lots of takeaways that hopefully can help some of us in our journey towards neuro-accessible healthcare. This episode will be posted both on the Princess and the Pea podcast and the Yellow Ladybugs podcast. So wherever you're listening from, hello and welcome. If you're new to my podcast, you can go all the way back to episode one from last year, which explains the meaning behind why I chose Princess and the Pea, my childhood nickname to call the podcast. And as a little sneak peek, next month in June, I will be launching the Princess in the Pea Academy and I'll be updating you more soon. So stay tuned. But for now, I just want to say you're not too much. You're perfect the way you are and your community is here. This episode, like many of my favourites, kind of took longer than we expected because we have far too much fun talking. So there'll be some behind the scenes content in the Princess and the Pea Academy membership when that starts up in a month. And we dive in further to talking about autistic burnout and employment. But in the meantime, feel free to go check out Mel's work at All Brains Belong, which I'll link to in the show notes. I will actually be talking with Mel again in a few weeks at All Brains Belong Brain Club. So feel free to join that as well and catch up on all the incredible community sessions on their website. So thanks for listening and I will see you next week.